there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Recently, I went to the theater and saw George Romero's 1978 classic, Dawn of the Dead, in 3D, which is interesting because I don't think it was ever released at 3D in 3D at the time. It feels very much like a, a midnight movie. It felt like going to a throwback, which it was. Um, I really love zombie movies in general. It's my favorite horror genre. I think there's an aspect of it that's wish fulfillment for people. Uh, the thing about zombie movies, it's always about people against these hordes of the undead that want to cannibalize them and kill them, you know? So in Dawn of the Dead, the survivors lock themselves in the mall. And in the 1978 version, I feel like there's more heart in it. Uh, it's really about human characters. We have four main characters in the movie. Two of them, of course, meet their demise at the hands of the zombies. And the ones who die of, of those four main characters are the ones who were the most consumed with being in the mall. And they were enjoying the fact that they had all of these material possessions at their fingertips. Was that how George Romero intended it? I'm not really sure. Zack Snyder's 2004 remake is different. Um, these are fast-moving, basically meth zombies or uh, bath salt zombies, if you guys remember that. But I love 2004, the 2004 remake, and Zack Snyder in general. People give him a lot of shit, but he's a great director, great artist. The reason I love it is because it really combines action with the horror genre. Uh, it, it, it's a huge contrast, I feel, to the original because, of course, those were slow-moving zombies. Soundtracks were very different, too. The soundtrack in 1978, uh, George Romero's version, it was a combination of kind of prog rock by this Italian band named uh, Goblin. They were a famous Italian band that scored a lot of horror movies. There's many different cuts of his version as well. Um, and it was also all of this weird elevator, easy listening uh, mall music. I mean, that's what I would call it. It's mall music. It, it, it very much of the time, of the time period. 2004 soundtrack, the, there's... The songs that he picked out are fucking fantastic. Zack Snyder picked out. The whole opening sequence of the movie before there's any music, it's we meet our main character, and she she's a nurse. She goes home. Her and her husband fuck, whatever, in the shower. Which who, I'm going to be honest with you right now, I don't really like shower sex. I feel like it is overrated, along with 69ing. Both overrated sexual activities. But anyways, all hell breaks loose. Smash cut to the opening, it's Johnny Cash's When the Man Comes Around. And you see all of these apocalyptic images of people praying, uh, zombies tearing people apart, news reports. And then it, go it go goes into the movie. Um, he also uses a great cover of, what is the name of the song? Down With The Sickness. But it's done in a lounge jazz style. By Richard Cheese. And it's it's this montage where 
the survivors are enjoying all the pleasures of being trapped in the mall. And you could say that that song was used because of the zombies, but equally, I think it's also used because they were they themselves were down with the sickness. I mean, the, the whole thing with Dawn of the Dead, it's a, it's a comment on consumer culture. Anyways, uh, I'm here again this week, joined by Danny Shaw. He's been listening to me ramble this whole time. Before I start the episode, I wanted to play this song that I wrote um, that's kind of influenced by all the zombie movies I've been watching lately. It's called Elevator Doors. Here it is. What is confrontation of self? An acceptance of what you are. An acceptance of what I am. In life, there is longing, tragedy, and despair. A grasp for connection through sex, drugs, money, and status. I've had everything stripped away, and I'm bare bones in the most painful but most beautiful of ways. I wasn't born Taylor Berryman. I was born Ward Taylor Wilson Jr. in Boynton Beach, Florida. For so long, I denied that's how I came into the world, and in doing so, I created an image of myself, one that was ripped at the seams. As a young man, I envisioned myself as a swashbuckling romantic meant for greater things than I would ever be bo- have been born into. I've learned that I'm not some invisible phantom, drifting in and out of whatever lover's consciousness was the flavor of the week, disappearing and re- reappearing in and out of women's lives, like a dark phantom. It's amusing and exciting when you're young, 
betting a bunch of girls to prove myself, to prove to myself that I existed, to prove to myself that I was worthy of love. After getting my heart broken enough times, I became a steely-eyed cynic, never revealing my thoughts or feelings. I didn't even know I was having them. Feelings, that is. I kept my heart a secret encased in ice, a self-defense mechanism. Yes, I'm aware of that now. I'd vanished from a woman's life like Houdini, most of the time without explanation. If one was given, it was vague and no replies were answered. Because fuck what you're feeling. I have my own pain to deal with. The image, the slicked back hair, the silver-tongued devil that goes bump in the night, slipping out before dawn. I have a busy day driving tomorrow. I have to record a podcast and it still needs to be prepped for. I have a practice at 7. Before that, I have to go make money. I always had an excuse. One that more often than not made them feel like whores. Like they were less than desirable. In my own pain, I caused heartache and carnage. I went to pussy Vietnam, had committed atrocities of the heart. Hell-bent on winning in an unwinnable war that kicked off with a false flag of the created image. Distant, cold, and self-aware. Who am I in a relationship? Who am I now? Love, connect, connection, and acceptance are essential and hard to come by. When you constantly avoid closeness with another human being. When you reveal yourself, you risk your heart. I always stayed hidden as to not disturb my misery. It feels some type of way to refer to this all as being in the past. Because it is. I lived a fractured, broken, and secret reality for all of my 20s. But then I lost my invisibility cloak. I had to have one to make up for a lack of armor that is in intimacy. I threw away anything that remotely got close to working out. How could I not resist the greatest mistress? That is misery and longing. The fantasy of what life could be is always better than what life currently is. It's a trick we play on ourselves to stop thinking about the inevitable death we all face. In this life, you are considered lucky if you get old. Old is a mindset. Many people give up. They stop growing and they have things figured out. But why? I'm puzzled, fascinated, and endlessly curious about other people. Why it is they are the way that they are. How I interact with them. How they interact with me. I feel like everyone is several different people over a lifetime. We are different in our jobs, in our relationships, in our families, in our friendships. For so long, I wish to be the person I, I am now behind the microphone. The person that is talking to you currently. I learned several different skills and lived several different lives to finally become Taylor Berryman. Well... Yeah, I mean, it all, I mean, there's always the nature versus nurture conversation. And I feel like, you know, there's so many different ways to unpack both. But, um, you know, there's no doubt that they both play a role. Um, I think what's interesting, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, you know, we both come from not necessarily similar upbringings, but we both faced 
a great deal of hardship and adversity. A, yeah, and adversity at a young age. And we've kind of loosely had this discussion before, but in a way, and this isn't to say that, you know, it's not good to have a good upbringing, but I think sometimes it puts you at a little bit of an advantage, even though there is trauma associated with it. Yes, I agree that it does put you at an advantage if you choose to see it that way. Because how many people, and this is this is not critical of of anyone in the the upbringing that they might have had or the hardships that they might have faced, but how many people end up just down in the gutter on drugs, drunk, whatever? Yeah, that is true. I I don't know. I'm not. I don't want to sound like stereotypical or like I'm against it but I feel like in general whether it's the movies or even in a song or you know plainly real life um, people love a comeback story and I think that you know your hardships shape you and that's like the most classic comeback story ever I feel like yeah I mean it's it's the American story we should have never on paper won the revolutionary war you know <laughs> yeah that's a conversation in its own for sure yeah i could do a whole podcast series <laughs> on that but yeah no i think i'm addicted to the uh the comeback stories or the stories of overcoming great adversity to become who you are and i faced hardship this past year due to my health and everything kind of came to the surface and looking back on it now, I was really shedding old skin. I was a snake becoming something else. You know, not that I'm a snake, but you get maybe the analogy. It, ma it makes sense. Um, I had outgrown old behaviors of isolation, you know, and something that I feel a lot is fear. It's pain, um, self-criticism. I have a very harsh inner monologue and part of that is due to the way that I grew up in survival but I even hate saying like oh the way that I grew up because I, I don't feel bad for myself now because I had to address those things that I didn't like about myself that were part and due to consequence of the way that I grew up um but at a certain point, you just, you have to own it. You can no longer blame your mom, blame your dad, blame your school, blame whatever, uh, and keep making excuses for yourself. Because that's, like, in some ways, they're, I, I'm not a fan of excuses from, from other people, um, but I love them for myself. And I think I can be very critical of the way of when I'm working with other people, but it's nothing ever personal. Like I never feel like that. That's the one thing I've learned in my working relationships is I tend to just say the flaws right away. Or I used to, cause it's like, Oh, as soon as we address these, then we can keep moving forward. And when you keep moving forward and you never look back, you're never really able to process what the issue or problem is 
whether it's professionally, in your dating life, in relationships, or whatever it is. Yeah, and I I think that maybe, um, not that this is necessarily the reason why you're that way, but I think you're good at taking constructive criticism. I think that's one of your strengths. I don't think you do take it personally if someone says, hey, you know, you could do this better, and you probably want to see that in other people. I mean, who doesn't? You know, the world would 100%. be easier if you could just say, hey, you're messing up in this area, and they're like, oh, you're right. We'll just kind of like you said, just move on. Let's get past the hurdle and, you know, be be better all around. But, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people take it as an attack, and I'm I can't speak to, you know, whether you have, but I, I'm guilty of it. Um, sometimes people tell me things that I'm doing wrong, and I, I take it personally. Yeah. Um, and I, I also like to think that I'm decent at taking constructive criticism, but not always. Yeah, no. I There are times that I have taken it personally, and I guess it really depends just being human here, like it depends on how it's delivered to me too. Um, I feel like if it's done under the guise of like trying to warm me up first to give me criticism, uh, I don't really like that. And maybe I'm saying that maybe that's actually not true. Yeah. If because in the moment it wouldn't bother me, but after I'd feel like, well, you just said a bunch of nice stuff about me, and it, it, it's like the corporate thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like every middle manager does this at, at a fucking job where it's like you're doing this and this great. Uh, you could really work on this, by the way. Um, you're ugly as fuck, and we hate you. <laughs> And also, we really like this about you. Right. Like They're buttering you up first. They're, they're uh, what would they say, like powdering your ass yeah. before they bend you over? Or well, whatever. what it is, it, it's a compliment sandwich. Like, that's, that's <laughs> right. straight up. They don't call it exactly that, but it's something along those lines. But the reason that they do it, like, all of these big corporations, like, I'm, I'm thinking back in particular to working at Staples, um... I, I don't doubt that they bring in psychologists along with a legal department whenever they're working on putting together the human resources department. I agree. It's a voodoo mind trick. It is. But it's because it works. That's yeah, why they it do it. It does work, yeah. But if you're aware of it, like that was the thing. I always felt so bitter and resentful because... Like, I always felt like, how am I aware of this and other people aren't? And sometimes people just, A, they don't think that deeply or they don't care. Or B, people know how to play the game better than I do. I've never been good at really playing the game in terms of, A, like, professional relationships, working a job, trying to grow my career. I've, I've, I've always operated under being honest and truthful to, to the best of my knowledge. Um, Cause you know, I, I might say things that are, that are untrue, but I don't mean them to be. And I, if I realize it, then I own it and I apologize for it. And I say, Hey, I didn't quite get this right, whatever. Or I was wrong about that. There've been times in the past where 
I've been in a disagreement with a, a friend, a family member, a girlfriend, whatever, and we'll be arguing about something, and then two hours later, I'll be like, oh, shit, they were right. And then I'll, <laughs> then I'll own it. Like, if I realize, I always own it. Yeah. Well, that's what's important is you want to learn and grow more than you want to just be right. I feel like that's, you know, that's one of the big problems I see with with some people, not not all. I, I like to associate my, myself with people who would rather grow and learn, but there are some people who just, they're so, st- it feels so good to be right. You know, it's like a, it's a shot of dopamine when you're right. Yeah, it is. And I think a lot of what we're seeing today, it's like we ha- we've made this culture now where we're dunking on each other constantly. Um, and there's something to be said for like busting your buddy's balls. Like someone yeah. we, we always harass Dustin. Yeah. We always give him a hard time and give him shit, but he, he deserves can, it. He deserves <laughs> it, but he can also take it. He can. Um, he's a good sport, a really good sport. Yes, he is. He's going to be jerking off to us talking about him though. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's something to be said for being able to listen to someone criticize you. And I think even criticize is too strong of a word and trying to help you would be too condescending of a way to put it. There's like a middle ground or something else that that can be used for. Yeah. um, I mean, I don't know. Like this... I mean, it, it really is just being honest. It's honesty at its core. Um, you know, a lot of times people will say uh, you shouldn't trust someone who says I'm going to be honest with you or something before they say. Um, I, I think there's truth to that. Like language is very important and you should, you know, you shouldn't always take it at face value. However, sometimes... I kind of do it as a little bit of a buffer with people or I will say, um, you know, and to kind of your point earlier, because it does feel condescending when someone compliments you right before they criticize you, because it's like, like you said, if you know what they're doing, you know, it's an exercise basically. And then you feel like you're, you're just being, you know, exercised upon basically. And so what I do sometimes is, um, and I'm not saying this, uh, maybe it's received poorly, but a lot of times I'll say to people directly, I'll say, I'm not trying to be mean in saying this yeah. to kind of prepare them for me to basically say something mean to them. Yeah. And then I usually say it in a pretty nice way and then they're surprised. Yeah. No. Um, I'm not saying that's a perfect system. I'm just saying it's one I use. <laughs> actually very interesting that you say that because there's... And we talked about this recently. There was uh, an episode of the uh, Jocko podcast I listened to, and he had on an FBI negotiator Mm -hmm. who uses that exact tactic you just described. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm so awesome. No, I'm just kidding. Because he would go in, like, let's say there's a, uh, a hostage situation in the Philippines or something like that. He would go in, and they would be doing all sorts of fuck shit, getting shit wrong. And if he just immediately laid into them, they would be unresponsive. They would just be like, this guy's an asshole. It would create a hostile environment where they're trying to get things done. 
Right. But he said, if he said, I'm not trying to be mean or I'm not trying to give you a hard time, whatever. Insert the phrase. Yeah. Um, and followed it up with something, they would hear it and think, oh, that's that's not mean at all. We can actually do that. Or we can X, Y, Z to help resolve this situation or this this step in this situation. Yeah. No, I. it's something that I, I didn't really think about psychologically until I did it a bunch of times. But I've realized that if you um, make people think that you're about to say something way worse than you actually are, then it's better received. So if you prep them and you do it by saying, oh, I'm not going to say something mean. And for whomever's listening, I'm not trying to like coach you in, you know, like PR manipulating people, but I can if you want. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I have actually learned that, yeah, if you kind of prep them in that way, then yeah, they'll take the the, you know, and I know we said we didn't like the word, but the criticism or whatever the, like I said, I call it honesty because if I care about someone and their actions, I'm going to be honest with them. And if I don't, then most of the time I don't care enough to say anything. And I think we've spoken about that a bit. My tongue was like a dagger stabbing into the hearts of those I loved to take the upper hand. And what in life? In our relationship, pain was my greatest drug, and like the invisibility cloak, had fallen away. When alone, I could bask in my misery. I could be what I thought I was. I could punish myself for crimes committed and the ignorance and arrogance of youth. Truthfully, they weren't crimes at all. Just mistakes, or as Bob Ross would say, happy accidents. But how did I get to this point? of the person that I am now, admitting I was wrong. For admitting the pain that I carried of the things I thought were my fault. There was freedom in admitting I was no longer a swashbuckling romantic. The layers peeled back and the same bare bones were exposed. I can do it in front of those that I care about now. The good news is they have stitches and medicine or can at least cry with me. So, yeah, I feel like I wasn't expecting it to necessarily be a theme, but I think honesty is kind of what comes back to, or what it kind of comes back to um, with what you're talking about in relation to your past. Um, with that being said, uh, I think that one of the hardest things to do is to be honest with yourself. You could almost argue it's impossible to be fully honest with yourself. Well, let me ask you this. Is it truly possible to ever know yourself? Well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about is like, I, yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to articulate a little bit is, um, you know, like when people say dig deep, you know, you have mental barriers just like you have physical barriers. Yeah. Um, and based off of a lot of what you're talking about, like, you know, your past and trauma and even genetics, again, back to the nature versus nurture thing, um, all of those things could be, you know, psychological roadblocks, for a lack of a better term, um, into like really getting in touch with who you really are. It reminds me of Don Draper on Mad Men, 
you've watched Mad Men, right? Most of it, yeah. Most of it, okay. Like seven seasons. Yeah, seven seasons. <laughs> and what's great about that show is that it really is like a character study, yes. People always complain about it saying that it's slow and nothing ever happens. But it's really not about necessarily a theme or a plot. It's about that everyday nature of life. And what it, the show focuses on, if, if you have never heard of Mad Men, it's uh, basically set in the 60s um, on Madison Avenue. And uh, the title or the, the main character, Don Draper, he is a flashy, charming uh, ad man. He, he is of his time period. And what's so fascinating about him and his character is, and the thing that I always related to, to him about, was he wasn't born Don Draper. Don Draper is an image that he created of himself. He was really born Dick Whitman, uh, the son, the son of, a, of a teenage prostitute who died during childbirth. And he's always trying to escape his past. There's all these little things that happen throughout the show, whether it's his brother coming, like his actual blood brother coming um, back into his life and trying to have a relationship with him, or his first wife, Betty Draper, finding out that he is Dick Whitman and he's he's not Don Draper. And Don Draper, he, he had the, the perfect life on paper. He had the house in the suburbs, the beautiful wife, uh, two and a half kids, the nice car, the great job. But throughout the whole show, you see him falling apart and for various reasons. Um, you see his marriage, his first marriage fall apart. What I've been thinking about lately is his second wife. What was, what was her name? Was that the... The French girl, Michelle, oh, right? I think so. Yeah. She was fine as fuck. Uh, but he married his fucking secretary. And he thought, <laughs> yeah. this is going to work out great. Because really, and I've been guilty of this in relationships. You idealize someone, but you don't allow them to be human. You don't allow them to have their their own flaws, their own wishes, uh, their own heartbreak that they deal with in life. And Don did this with his second wife. It's, it's like the, uh, this, this great white hope, this, this promise that's off in the distance, and you think, I finally found it. But once the honeymoon period wears off, you're left with reality. And you see a lot of the show through Don's perspective. It's like when we're first introduced to, uh, to his second wife, we see how great she is. She's everything that's represented in the 60s in a modern woman. She's smart. She's funny. She's good at parties. But Don's very private. And there's this one particular party that they have where she sings a song to him in French and he gets really embarrassed by it. He hates it. He chastises her for it because he knows how it looks in front of all these people that they work with. 
It's like, oh, yeah, your hot second wife. Like, this will be a distant memory one day when, when you're divorced. And it's almost like that's one of the first moments where you can smell it coming. There's also an element of the generational difference as well. But, yeah, long story short, I fucking love Mad Men. I could go on for it. <laughs> about about it for hours it is a great show and it's one of those things where it looks like not a lot is going on 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 the surface but it's like all in the character development and the relationships that they have it's a people show it's like standing in a room talking it's one of those types of shows yeah well that's what makes don's character so great and there's all these other characters on the show that are like his foil like uh peggy she's in a lot of ways She's very similar to Dawn and very different from Dawn. And do you remember where she, when she got pregnant, she didn't know it. She had the yeah. baby. Dawn went to go see her. Mm-hmm. His advice, it sounds like great advice, but it's horrible. It's not good. He says, keep moving forward. And I think it's good to have that mentality, but you have to process what's going on in the moment or at least attempt to because you end up a fucking mess otherwise. And isn't, wasn't Peggy's baby Pete's kid? Was that right? Yeah. Okay. I, it's been a while since I've watched it and he pretty much like ghosted, ghosted her. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. If I remember correctly. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's kind of a fuck in that show, honestly. He, he he's like is. a little slime ball. Well, there's this rivalry between Pete and um and Roger. Cause in a lot of That's the gray haired guy. The gray haired right? guy. Yeah. In a lot of ways, they're the same guy, but they have different demeanors and different dispositions. Because they both come from wealth and privilege, but fucking um roger he fought in world war ii he's like a world war ii vet right he doesn't put up with any bullshit he has experience pete is just very arrogant the other interesting thing about pete is that he's one of the only characters on the show who doesn't smoke i don't know if you ever noticed that i don't think i did no um yeah no i didn't notice that yeah he um he has said it was disgusting and all of that um but yeah, uh, Peggy and her whole character arc on the show, we see her in a lot of ways become what Dawn was out on the surface, but for real. You know, right. there's there's all this inner tor- turmoil for Dawn. Peggy started off as Dawn's secretary, and eventually she became like the creative director of the last fucking place that they ended up working at together because the show it kind of changes through the years yeah they start their own firm at one point Mm -hmm. they get bought out they start to work for that firm did you see the ending of the show no so i i think i've told you this but my luck was so bad with the show i was in the middle of watching it and i don't know if it was before netflix like gave you the warnings like only two more weeks left to watch this but I was like in the middle of it several seasons in and one day I went back to like continue watching it and it was just off Netflix. Do you know how it ends? Have you ever heard about the ending of the show? No. Can I spoil it for you? It's fine, yeah. Okay, so basically Dawn goes out to California. You were probably at that point, right? Was he out in California yet? I don't think so. No. So what are there, like nine seasons? Seven or, seasons. Okay, I think I might have been in like five. Okay. 
Um, everything is falling apart for Don again. He's not addressing any of his fucking issues. He's off the heels of the divorce with the fucking hot second wife. Goes out to California. Goes to this meditation retreat. And he calls the three women that are most important to him in his life. Uh, Peggy, he talks to her. Um, and he's on the verge of tears with her on the phone. I think there, there's freedom a lot in that relationship between them because Don never wanted to fuck her. Yeah. He, he always, uh, in a lot of ways, saw her as, her as his equal, but Peggy earned being seen as his equal. Right. In that era of time, you know, it, it was women were secretaries, but she, we see her evolve throughout the series and become what it like what that whole time period was for women which they were fighting for equal rights you know yeah. two coffees or something like that <laughs> but he calls his daughter sally and she says i don't even know you like i don't know you um and she also tells him like don finds out from the the other woman that he calls and i'm telling this all out of order but it's betty his first wife and she says she has uh, very advanced lung cancer, and she's going to die. Um, and there's kind of a moment of reconciliation between them. <sighs> Whatever you can in life, because I, I feel like we always have these great ideas in our head of making up with someone and things just being okay from then on, but real human relationships aren't like that. But um, when he calls his daughter Sally... He talks to her about it, and she's kind of comforting Don, which, you know, I think it really reflects a lot of that time period where it's like as much shit as I love to talk about the boomers, like the generation that came before them, they weren't big on hugs and kisses. No. Um, and they're very, uh, very hardened because of that. But Sally comforts Don, tries to make him feel better, and also establishes some boundaries with him. Because Don right away is saying, hey, uh, you guys are going to move in to me with the city. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And Sally's like, no, we're not going to do that. The boys, because at this point they they have a third kid, like Betty and, and Don had a third child in a later season. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically she, she puts her foot down and says, we're not going to come with you because the boys need normalcy right now. They need to be in their beds and at their schools with their friends because they're about to face a very traumatic event. And I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of what she said. And we see Don at this meditation retreat, and you think he's about to kill himself. Like, he looks the worst he's ever looked. Uh, He goes into this group where they all kind of share their feelings with their, their thinking. And he connects with this other guy who talks about wanting this thing that he doesn't know if it actually exists or not. And like, you can call it love. You can call it whatever. I I don't even necessarily, I I think it's just connection. And Don breaks down crying and hugs this, this stranger, which the other interesting thing about Don is the way that he connects with strangers on the show. Like, if, if it's a stranger, Don can flatly almost tell them that he's Dick Whitman, he stole 
Don Draper's identity, all this shit. He comes short of saying that, but he shares so much of himself. Um, and rarely do we see in the show his actual life, the one that he's lived versus the way he tries to portray it in terms of other people. But with strangers, he drops his guard a little bit and he doesn't mind being like, I grew up in a whorehouse. Right. That's because he's an admin. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 100%. Yeah. Cause he's selling, he's always selling strangers, but the show, the ending it's, Don, he's up on this cliff, on this hill, and he's meditating with this group. And then it just cuts to the classic Coca-Cola ad. I like to buy the world a drink. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking of about? Of course, yeah. Um, and I think it's a, a happy ending. Uh, I don't think Don Draper changed as a person, but I think he accepted who he was. And he had that Nirvana moment of one of the most famous ads of all time. You could also take it as something very cynical, which Don realized what he was, and that's an ad man. And that's all he'll ever be. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's two sides to that. They're both probably true. And you know what? With the nature of life, I would 100% agree with you. Yeah, they're both probably true. Like, Don is creative he's smart he's intelligent he's charismatic but with that comes all of his bullshit his his don draper bullshit yeah for sure he has multiple wives or ex-wives and he's cheating constantly yeah but that's just the way it was back then I wanted every situation I was in to be bottom of the ninth, two outs. I always want life's big moments to be on my shoulders. I wanted the win or loss to be by my doing. But the dirty little secret of life is that you rarely have control or even wins or losses. They're just moments in time. It's all about how you respond, how I respond. I constantly put myself in the position for a comeback win. I'm addicted to it. We were talking about the comeback win. If I lost, I'd be stoic about it. Stoicism, another mask I put on to appear put together while I was being an emotional mess on the inside. Going back to the dating thing, I had my heart broken and there was no way I was going to allow that to happen again. I made a promise to myself that I was never going to be seen as mentally weak by a woman ever, ever again. I never smiled unless it was at life's dark nature. I was cold, ice cold. I suffered from that, as did all of my personal relationships. I wanted to be the last cowboy. I had a girlfriend say to me one time that being the last of anything isn't good for me mentally. Was it toxic masculinity? No, not in how I would define the term. It was fe fearful for sure, um, but that's by someone who lived every moment in fear. When I wasn't in fear, it was pain, and when I wasn't in pain, it was despair. Fear and insecurity are scented. It seeps out of someone's skin like a late night on Broadway. I can smell it because they were my two closest friends. I spent time in isolation and deprivation. I wish I could tell you I was rewarded for my bad behavior, but I really wasn't. 
The universe pointed me in multiple the universe pointed me in the correct direction multiple times, but I avoided the uncomfortable feelings of change. Part of it is that I was truly being blissfully unaware and being okay with staying that way. My entire life was discomfort. Everyone's is in some way. Whether it's me, you, the Kardashians, or Harry Styles. Sometimes I think people associate, you know, it's like the modern thought that being uncomfortable is like, you know, success, you know, and it's like, I mean, it is good to be uncomfortable, but every, like, we're an ambition or an ambitiously driven society, I feel like. And absolutely, what I think is important to note is that, um, Ambition isn't always good. Or, or, well, it doesn't always result in good. I agree with that. Yeah, I think in modern American culture, everybody wants to be LeBron James or everybody wants to be whatever. And to a certain degree, if I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, (laughs) um, I'm that way myself. I mean, I'm talking on this fucking microphone right now. I'm hoping that... While you are listening, there's there's something that you can resonate with, but truthfully, I'm just kind of spitting what I think, what I what I have felt I've learned about life. Well, and I think that there's definitely value to that because it's your perspective, but also like in relation to what you were talking about um, with your past and... Um, you know, wanting basically not necessarily being rewarded, but, you know, kind of just being busy and continuously going, there's, we're kind of taught that like, even if you're suffering, as long as you're being ambitious and you're working towards your goals, that it's justifiable, that that suffering is justifiable. And I'm not saying that sometimes it isn't because, um, it's the classic, like sacrificing the short term for the long term, yep. but there's, there's a line that can be crossed. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's what I was kind of alluding to or referring to as creating this stoic mask because in, I don't know if it's in my nature, in my nurture or whatever it is, there, there's an element of stoicism in me, but it's like, on the other hand, I really that might be a strength of mine, but I tried to make it my, my whole face. That That's the only thing that people can see. I wanted to be viewed as someone strong and forthcoming, which, don't get me wrong, those are, those are two very good things to be viewed as, um, but it was more so like having men- mental strength. I never necessarily wanted anybody to be intimidated by me, but I wanted to feel like they could rely on me. Yeah. But not not in a manipulative way. No. Uh, no, no. Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, I think the only person that I've really ever manipulated is myself. How you know? so? Um... 
by creating these uh, characters in, in my head of or this character in my my head of myself because in my 20s early to mid 20s I saw myself as a swashbuckling romantic which I was to a certain degree but I played it up and then basically the past five years I became like a a cynical stoic but do you think it's in spite of your experiences that that happened or um yes well in spite i don't know um but it was definitely a reaction uh it made me have the illusion of safety and self preservation but you also having that experience now, would you say you're less stoic currently? Um, that's a good question. Uh, not necessarily, but I feel like the facade that I had for myself is gone. Like I understand that's a part of a part of me. And again, is it in the nature or in the nurture? I don't know. But it was almost like I wanted to appear as the superhero version of myself all the time, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I think as much as I think that may have, you know, not been great for you, I think ultimately... It's gotten you to it where you are me. now. Yeah, yeah, and it's changed your perspective. Sure. And that's what's great about those types of things is that even when you don't like the path that you're going down, it gives you perspective and it shapes you. It definitely shapes you. I created that stoic to help me become successful. But success to me then was shallow and vague no amount of pussy made me feel good because that's what I was always chasing I went through a phase where I was abusing Adderall I won't say I had an addiction um, it wasn't an addiction but if left unaddressed it definitely would have turned into one there was a period of time where I was working two jobs uh, the apartment's I lived at on Lebanon Pike and Bridgestone Arena where I was in a manager a manager for a day labor company that staffed the concession stands. I would work from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. for the apartments, then 7 p.m. to 1 or 2 in the morning. I needed something that got me up and kept me going. Someone I worked with at the apartments had a prescription for it and they'd sell it to me. What was the point that I stopped. Thinking back, it was probably at the end of winter because that entire winter, I was going to one job, taking an Adderall, getting out of that job, going to uh, Bridgestone Arena. And I was sick as fuck all the time. Like I was not getting any sleep and I was also on Tinder a ton too. 
I went out on a date with this girl. We met for drinks at Beyond the Edge in East Nashville. And looking back on it now, the date went horrible. I was argumentative, but I viewed it as being playful. But I was really just obnoxious. Snipping and snapping at every word she said. She attempted to make conversation and get to know me. At the time, I thought the date went great, but it didn't. Um, Never mix Adderall and alcohol. I had a rude awakening when I tried to message her on Tinder when I got home. She had already unmatched me. I realized in a drunken, addied-out stupor that this was a dark path I was going down. But everything was going so great, of course, or at least I thought. I had a day job that I hated, and most of all, I hated myself. Self-hatred was probably my biggest aphrodisiac. It goes hand-in-hand with pain. I was blue. I was the bluest of blue. Constantly sick and deviated from my life path. But what's a boy to do except wall himself off and take it out emotionally on unsuspecting lovers? Although I stopped the Adderall, I was still heat-seeking as much chaos as I could find. My breaking point, or at least another breaking point, I was dating a female wrestler. I wasn't really attracted to her, but she was willing to fuck me and had a great body. She could smell that I had problems. She was somewhat put together. We hooked up a few times and she dropped me. She told me about how this guy that lived in her dorm was flirting with her. Not in those words, but the message was sent. I didn't necessarily realize what was happening, though. I, I could smell that, but I didn't know yet the damage had already been done. I had been done, and I got... I became very bitter and cynical because of it. And I think at a turning point, that's when I really started to create this character in my mind how could that girl that I wasn't even attracted to be done with me the swashbuckling romantic cue the cynical stoic the next girl I dated was a literal prostitute I met on tinder it was a chaotic and messy relationship We'd go months without seeing or speaking to each other until one of us got lonely enough for a late night booty call. Again, this was another woman I wasn't really attracted to, but she wanted to uh, fuck me. And we never fucking use condoms. Are you noticing a pattern yet? I would fuck any woman that wanted to fuck me. Truthfully, most guys are that way. But it got to the point to where I lost count of the women that I had sex with. And that was honestly something that I started to become ashamed of. When, and it, it's still like this to this day, but I never know if I'm about to step on a fucking landmine when I go out to dinner in Nashville. Like if I'm going to see some girl that I hooked up with and straight up don't even remember her name. Yeah. I mean, Nashville is a pretty relatively small town. But 
I mean, would she even remember you? Yes. You think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay I mean, so it wasn't like a mutually drunken type of thing with no it it was multiple multiple times over the course of several months maybe even a year um and my life was just so much of that with all different kinds of girls and god damn i it would be interesting to hear what they had to fucking say about me because if they had nothing nice to say I wouldn't really blame them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not like an abuser, dude. Like, I'm not hitting or raping women or anything like that. But verbally, like, and emotionally, I was just so removed. They, they would get to know me through terms of what I liked about music and art and creativity and all these different things, but they didn't truly know me because anytime I were to show a girl when I was young um young as in in my like early 20s uh kind of some of the scars that I have I would feel rejected uh because it's a lot to lay out on someone that you're you're just you've met on tinder and that you're banging you know what I mean yeah I mean yeah it's hard to know what you want to share or like what you should share with people and who you can trust. It sucks, but it seems like the older you get, the more skeptical you are to trust people. Um, Not to say that you can't have really good trustworthy relationships. I do. I know you do. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it can be difficult to know. And I think I'm, I don't know, like, it's not really an excuse, but you were young, you know, and I think that it's a common, not that your um, situation isn't unique, it is, but I think that it's a common thing, regardless of what the cause is, to, you know, kind of lack empathy um, when it comes to dating, at least as a man. I mean, I... Pussy just, Vietnam, A dude. lot of what you're saying I can relate to, not necessarily to the extent, but um, there were definitely a lot of times where I knew there were feelings on the other end, and I honestly lied to myself and said that I did, like, didn't know that they were there, but it, looking back, if I was actually honest with myself... I knew. I knew what I was doing. I just didn't care because you don't have a very good um, idea of how your actions affect other people when you're in your early 20s or teenage years. When that relationship imploded, I was bottomed out. An on-again, off-again relationship with an actual hooker? Who had I become? The pain was so strong that it was time for change. She had gone into a recovery program for sex and love addiction and recommended I do the same. She gave me the gift of recovery. I had just gotten fired from the apartment job and I was now willing to admit there was a problem, but believe me, I still kept the charade going. My body count kept rising. I'd slip up. I'd get lonely and would need a break from the isolation. 
in an unsuspecting woman's vagina. The chase was a rush. Getting the match, knowing that they wanted to fuck, but I had to act in such a way that made them feel like they weren't being a whore. I couldn't act that way for long, though. Most of them were, in fact, whores, but I was a whore, too. Society doesn't look down on me or judge me for it, though. Them's the breaks. Life is cruel and we're all going to die. Why would I care? Why should I care? It doesn't matter what I do anyway. This was my modus operandi. I couldn't be bothered to treat women with dignity and respect because I had none for myself. After all, I was just a villain of circumstance. In a, it was the world that treated women this unfairly. I learned to manipulate a woman's love and trust to get in between her legs, the place I felt my face belonged. I was deceiving myself, the cynical stoic. I could do no wrong playing only the hand I was dealt with the rules as they were written but never explained. When I first went into recovery, I listened to Desperado by the Eagles every day and cried in my car. I finally started to let my pain out in the form of tears. There were good ones mixed in the lot, in terms of women that I dated. Girls that would have been great long-term partners, but I scared them off. When I first moved to Nashville, there was this girl that I was going out with. She was from L.A. Can you say L.A., Danny? A lot. Uh, we matched on Tinder, of course. Surprise, surprise. And she was really cool. She was nice. She was funny. Uh, she was very warm and friendly. And I wasn't prepared for that. I had met girls like this before, but now I was in a big city. And when you're in the big city and you're dating, it's the jungle. It is nature at work. It is nurture at work. I guess you could say it's both nature and nurture at work. But what ended up happening was I scared her off. And it was through multiple, multiple kind of encounters. We had a great first date. Uh, normally I would consider myself a bad first date. I, but it was because of that stoic kind of nature. But every now and then there was a girl that would break through and I would start laughing and, and joking right away, which is not normally like myself back then. I would try and keep that hidden. I didn't want them to know that I liked having fun. But one memory I have with her, I can think of three separate things that really contributed to the, the death of this relationship. It didn't last long, maybe a month and a half. Um, she was also new to town. She was a waitress. She didn't have a dog. Uh, and she liked Paramore. I, I think I might have said that. She was obsessed with Paramore. She was super into them. And I went over to her house and she didn't really like weed. She didn't really fuck with it. But I brought my weed over anyways. Because I was about to get laid. I was like, I'm going to take a good thing and make it even better. She said it was fine. But you know how sometimes when women say it's fine, it's really not fine. Uh, it was one of those times. And she never really confronted me about it. But I felt like she was hanging on to this just so she wouldn't be lonely on Christmas. 
Same for me. It was the same deal. We both kind of knew what we were doing. And another time was KG Elephant was playing at the Basement East. It was the same day as the release of Tell Me I'm Pretty, recorded in Nashville with none other than the Black Keys of Dan Auerbach at Easy Eye Sound. So I was very pumped for this album because basically the entire summer uh, preceding it, I, I they had released maybe a couple of singles. Maybe I'm fucking up my timeline. I don't know. But I was listening a lot to Cage because I knew they were in Nashville, although they're from Bowling Green. They were here. And um, I said, hey, you want to go try and get tickets? You want to go see them tonight? And she said, no but you can go. And I was like, great, I'm going to fucking go. Um, I did end up going to, to that show. I waited outside, no joke, for like 40 minutes waiting for someone to be like, my friend didn't show up because that always happens at shows. If, if it's ever a band I really want to see, like I want to fucking see bad, I'll just, uh, I'll wait outside because everybody always has a friend that doesn't show who's flaky and bails out at the last minute. So, in my opinion, shows are never truly sold out. Someone just didn't show up. The show was awesome, by the way. Um, another time was we went to we went to a show together. We did go see the Arcs at the Ryman. It was a date, and um, she said it always kind of annoyed her when people like preceding this this date. But she said it always kind of annoyed her whenever people would get uh, like shirts and clothing and shit with uh, with weed leaves on it. And the arcs, I saw that they had this really cool fucking shirt and it had weed leaves all over it and I got it. And I think at that moment it was just over. I remember I went over there on Christmas Day and we fucked, we did whatever. Um, and she was kind of cold and distant from me and it was the next day. It was over, it was done for. Damn. Yeah. That's uh sometimes when you know, you know though. Yeah, I could sense it was coming cuz I think even when you're young, you just feel something is off but you don't know what yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something's up and you feel like someone's not telling you. And I was past the point of getting mad cuz I think when I was like a teenager, 21, 22, I would just get mad. Um, and this was another another thing that contributed to me just trying to wear, wear that mask. Um, it's like the Billy Joel song, The Stranger, you know? We, we take it off when, uh, when everybody else is gone. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, I mean, again, it's... What, how old were you when you had this relationship? I was young, dude. I was like 23 or 24. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, again, not to justify it, but I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, 24, 25 year old stuff. Yeah, I've, I've got some, sure. some similar stories. I wasn't as, um, I guess like unwilling to, uh, like display my emotions, I would say, but I sometimes learned the hard way that when you open up too much, 
then you're vulnerable. Um, you know, I mean, you wouldn't really guess this that much now, but like I was a pretty sensitive young man, honestly. You know what? That honestly does make a lot of sense to me. Really? Yeah, because I feel like we're similar in the way that um like people might not necessarily describe either one of us this way, but I do kind of feel like we wear our hearts on our sleeves a little bit. Yeah. I could agree with that. And I think anytime you're that kind of person who does, uh, you don't know how to keep it in check when you're young and you get hurt a lot because of it. Right. At least that's what was one of the things that contributed to me going down that path and just basically going off the fucking rails. Yeah. But I, I mean, again, I think the perspective of knowing and having those fuck ups, like... Let me put it this way. The people who, and and nothing against the people who meet their soulmate when they're young. Like, great job. Congratulations. You did it. But you always got to wonder, like, without all that life experience, and I'm not saying, you know, people should, kind of like we were talking about earlier, I don't think people should have bad childhoods. I don't. I don't think that that's what makes a good person. And I don't think having bad relationships may like necessarily makes you um, automatically someone who's going to, you know, be good in a relationship. But I do wonder the difference. Like if you side by side took someone who had maybe had five or six on and off relationships that didn't go well versus someone who met their, you know, their dream partner, like, right out of high school or whatever, how, like, psychologically they view their other, like, their significant other and how um, how they, like, break down emotions. Because uh, something you said earlier, I don't remember specifically what it was, but it, it kind of triggered a thought, and that's that like people aren't fixtures people aren't uh items and they're not trophies you know i know women usually get applied that but i mean it applies to to everyone we're not objects we're living and breathing things that change constantly and i think when you're with someone for really any length of time and you're comfortable with someone you forget that And it's easy to do, and I think that that's why a lot of, um, you know, why divorce rates are so high. I'm not trying to go on a tangent or anything, but I think that is part of the problem is that when you're around someone uh, for long enough, you start to just kind of feel like, oh, well, this person will be by my side no matter what, so I don't really have to nourish that relationship. And I feel like you learn that lesson through the loss yeah you know 100 that's the best way to actually you know i mean i'm articulating it but it's like to someone who's never experienced that they could listen to that and be like oh well yeah that sounds like it sucks but it's like when you felt that and you understand that it hits home yeah well it's lived experience and i think with relationships whether you're someone who's been with a lot of people or someone who's been with one person, uh, they're almost similar in a way to where 
you can become blinded by the ignorance of the other experience, the opposite experience, because you learn something from being in a long-term relationship, and you also learn something from being with a ton of different people. Yeah, You know, th- th- there's there's two sides of that, and I think for myself, it got to the point to where I had seen the ugliest side of myself, and also the I brought out the worst in the women that I was with. I don't want to say it was all my fault, because it wasn't. Like, it, it takes two to tango of course so when i was talking about all these women i was just talking about the shit that i can own i'm sure you know some of them now they've probably grown as people and things have changed and they have a different perspective but it's like for for so long i would i would tell all these stories like on man of science man of faith a, a bunch of the tinder stories were were told but they were told with a, a sense of humor, but it was also, I understood the substance beneath it. Right. You know, because th- there was a lot of funny, interesting life experiences that happened throughout that entire time period. Um, I would not want to live them again, I guess, in the way that it's made me the person that I am today. I, I would. But knowing what I know now, I would respond very differently and also know when to walk away or when to not even approach a certain, like if I see certain things with, with someone right. that like just red doesn't flags. Yeah. Red, red flags, I feel, yes, but I feel like that word gets overused a lot. Right, right, right. Because every single human being, I feel like, is a walking red flag. You know, we all have our own issues but it's the way in which we deal with them i think that defines us um and especially with with men today i feel very empathetic to a lot of these young men who just were sold this bullshit about women in our culture we are told that they are beautiful delicate flowers that can do no wrong or that they're whores, and there's no real middle ground to that, which it, it's dehumanizing in a way. I mean, because I bought into that lie. It's it's very ugly, and I don't think that that's true. And I mean, some women are, of course, beautiful and emotional, delicate flowers, but that also doesn't mean they can't be a whore and vice versa. Of course. And I don't use whore as a derogative term like in a negative way or not derogative but in a judgmental way like i'm just using it for lack of a better word because a woman is seen as seen as a whore if she sleeps with a bunch of men and i mean i dated a literal fucking whore but um a woman is seen in our society like she can't be touched or she can't be fucked with what if she's a person who looks back on that and sees all those experiences that she has, and she's like, I'm not proud of that now. You know what I mean? And our culture doesn't really do a service to them. of Because I think there are some women, I don't know how many, but they get to this point when they're older, and they've lived life a little bit, the same lives that we have lived. And they feel like, I wish I wouldn't have slept around the amount that I did. Which, as a man... I feel that way. Um, 
but they can't say that out loud without judgment. And it's like, sometimes you have to be able to express yourself because if you just keep it in, it eats away at you. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely problems and an imbalance with how sex is viewed uh, with men versus women. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I'm, uh, you know, at will to really <laughs> speak on the subject extensively, but this is one, what I will say is, um, in the past, and I'm, I'm no, by no means like, you know, getting laid all the time or like have multiple partners or anything like that. Um, you know, but I, I have had experiences in the past and, when I've had other like young men ask me or vent to me and say like, you know, it doesn't seem like I'm getting positive attention from women or it doesn't seem like, you know, something's going my way or whatever it is in the, in the dating realm. I think what I found, and I think this is something that my mother literally told me when I was a child, is that like women are just human beings just like us you know and i know Who that would have i know that's so fucking simple but it's like like yeah just because you, like as a man like you biologically are like oh that's a woman you know i you know i could I have i could have sex with her just because that's always there doesn't mean you know we're smart enough humans as fucking dumb as we are, like we're actually really smart. Our brain powers have so, our brains have so much potential. And, you know, we have, you know, I almost mentioned this earlier, but we're, I believe, not everyone believes this, but I believe that we are the only species on the planet that is aware of death. So we're the only, the only animals uh, that know that death is coming. I believe that all other animals are blissfully unaware of death. They let instincts guide them. Um, and it's because of that knowledge that we're able to take a step back and self-reflect. I agree with you, yes. But there's also this aspect of denial that death happens. Like I'm sure there's people you know that keep, that are living as well as I do that, that are, are living like life is never going to end. That's true. But I think that runs out. I mean, there are facts of life. I mean, you know, you look in the mirror as years pass and yeah, it's like, you age. Yeah. Life happens. And, but what I'm uh, not to get on a tangent, but what I'm saying is that I think that, um, you know, the instincts and the, the urges or whatever might always be there um you know there are biological facts uh we Absolutely. are we are primal beings there those things exist and if you say that they don't then you're denying facts and truth and I, i'm not trying to get into a scientific debate or anything like that but what i'm saying is that we're we're intelligent enough creatures to acknowledge that and look past that and that's what I'm what I was getting at by saying that like women are human beings is that you know just because you know your male brain is like oh yeah I, I want to fuck. fuck 
I feel like the best thing to do is to just, you know, level with a woman and treat them like a human being. And that's usually the best way to get to know the actual them, you know? Yeah, I, I agree I know with that, that sounds, you know, overwhelmingly obvious, but... Well, it's it's not something that we're really taught as young men, you know? And I, I think women, they get angry... Um, and this is, of course, if you go online and see any of this shit, it's like, like men are not taught, um, the responsibilities of, of being in a relationship with a woman, which I agree with, but whose job is it? Well, it's the families first and foremost. It's like whatever you are a product of your environment. Um, but I guess what I'm kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier. The one thing I want to ask you is, are we too intelligent or are we too stupid Um, as a species? Well, I think, you know, in like both in a lot of ways, I think as we become intelligent in some ways, it, you know, detaches us from some of our like natural intelligence and instincts. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like just an example is, you know, we're smart enough to create an iPhone that can do all the math for us that we could ever want. And that can, you know, tell us what direction North is at any given moment. But if you ask someone a complicated math problem or which direction north is most people are not going to know society as a whole is going to become conditioned to expect that the smartphone that we created is going to give us that answer so what's the point and there is a valid argument to that einstein that's pretty much how einstein thought he was like well why should i memorize things if i can write it down in a book why should I use my brain capacity to learn how to tie my shoes if I can use that same capacity um, to, you know, solve problems? But also that comes with the mentality that, um, like, knowledge is finite. Did you ever read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells when you were a kid? Uh, the Time Machine? The Time Machine, yeah. I th- uh Maybe I I would have to. Well, he basically this this time travel. This guy creates a time machine. He goes to the future, and everybody's dumb as fuck in the future because they just had like calculators and all that shit. Uh, do it for them, and that's what it makes me think of. No, well, I haven't. That's one of the ones I did not. It, it's read. like a, a classic piece of of literature. Um, I have I haven't read it since since I was a kid, but that's always the one thing I remember for it. Um, what do you have going? Do you have anything going in the next couple of weeks? Uh, so tonight as of recording, I've got, uh, the dogwood, but it'll pass. It will have passed passed, by the time it's released. Um, other than that, first Thursday of every month at Kimbrough's in Franklin. Where can people find you at Danny? Uh, Instagram at shooting the shit. Or Eat Sleep Rock Nashville at Eat Sleep Rock Nashville on Instagram. Or you can find me on Facebook at Danny Shaw Rometta. Or you can find Eat Sleep Rock Nashville at www.esrnashville.com. What if 
the person that's listening to this needs their carpets cleaned, how can they contact you? They can call 615-693-6370 or they can visit uh, NashvilleCarpetCleaningTN.com. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Have a good one. You only live twice, or so it seems. One life for yourself and one for your dreams. Keep on dreaming. See you next week. Thank you.